Today's conversation is rooted in a discussion about cancer, and my guest, Barry, is a cancer survivor. And the conversation that we had focuses on patient advocacy, how she became an advocate, and how we should all have someone in our corner when we are going through something, any kind of a disease, that requires care and interaction with the Western medical model. It can be confusing, it can be scary, and not everybody gets the same level of care just because you show up with said disease. And if you're a person of color, it might be even harder, sad to say. This is the Rebellious Wellness Over 50 podcast for women over 50 who have a lot of living yet to do, who want to enjoy the ride for as long as they can in good health and with a sense of humor, maybe a little wine. I'm Gregory Ann Cox, and I believe it's time to bust the myth that aging equals decline in every area of life. Nonsense. I would say something else, but I'll keep it clean for now. Aging happens, but it doesn't have to ruin your life. You just need to get a little rebellious in your approach. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Rebellious Wellness Over 50. Today, we're going to have a very heartfelt and deep conversation about a couple of things that are important in um, healthcare and our lives and health as women. My guest is Barry Ross, and she's going to talk to us about cancer, cancer care, surviving cancer. And we're going to talk a little bit about the kinds of care that certain people get and maybe others don't and what we can do about it, how to be patient advocates for people in our families and our communities. Barry, welcome. Well, thank you for having me. Greg. You're welcome. Yeah. Now, tell me about you. You have, you're a cancer survivor for many years now. Head and really, cancer. This is my 11th year. 11th of surviving um, stage 4B head and neck cancer. Gosh, I didn't even know there was such a thing as head and neck as a generalized thing. I thought it would be more specific, like a lymph node or a organ. Well, what they, how they classify head and neck is that anything between the nose <laughs> and the neck. So okay. it's separated from brain cancer, it's separated from other parts, okay. this specifically this area. Okay. Yeah. And your experience as a cancer patient led you to get into the advocacy and family advisor role that you're in now. Is that correct? That's correct. Tell us a little bit about how that happened. What, what was the journey there? Yeah. So the journey, my journey started in April of uh, 2009 with uh, my husband was already being looked at. Uh, suspected of cancer and where the journey led us is that we were both diagnosed with cancer within 72 hours of each other. Oh my goodness. I was diagnosed with head and neck cancer and that started with a small swelling behind my ear that my husband noticed. He was then diagnosed um, three days later with acute lymphoblastic leukemia. So it became quite a journey for both of us. Wow. Uh, that year was, <laughs> that two years was crazy. Uh, we were in Phoenix. Our daughter was in Atlanta, which is where we are now. And she happened to be working for the Winship Cancer Center, which is part of Emory University. She brought us here. We were both treated successfully. But 
during the treatment, um, there's a whole lot to learn when you're going through any any disease, but especially cancer, because it's a foreign language. The doctors are speaking and talking and you don't know exactly what they're talking about. Uh, And I and my husband, we were trying to learn about each other's cancers as well to see what we needed to do. But during the treatment, it became very apparent to me that I needed to learn the language that they were speaking (laughs) on my behalf. Um, what, what chemo meant. I had chemo, I had radiation, and I had a, a major surgery to attack my cancer. Fortunately, they all worked, but everybody doesn't get um, that kind of care. I did learn that, first of all. That, uh, and I probably learned that before I came to Emory. I actually learned that in the doctor's office out in Phoenix. Because when he gave me my diagnosis and I started asking questions and he said, well, you know, the best guy out here that, you know, deals with what you have, they don't take your insurance. Mm -hmm. And the second best guy that I know, he doesn't take your insurance, but I found somebody in a book that takes your insurance. And uh, I don't know anything about him. He's in the book and he can't see you for six weeks. So that's when I told him, I said, you just gave me a diagnosis of late stage cancer. You're having an insurance conversation and I need to hear a save Barry's life conversation. Good point. And you're not, you're not touching on that anywhere. <laughs> wow. Um, and he looked at me and he says, well, that's just a fact. It's just a fact. This is the best I can do for you. So I called my daughter. She made arrangements. I was brought to Atlanta. And so was my husband a few days later. When we got to Emory, which is a which is a, a research hospital, it's world renowned. It's one of the best in cancer. But when we got there, what I realized is, is that they have something in all medicine called standard of care. And that's just the basics. And if you or somebody with you doesn't know how to ask questions, how to advocate, how to almost be an activist for you, that you're going to get the standard of care and that your possibilities of survival drop significantly. Mm. And one of the things that Emory and a lot of the big centers, MD Anderson uh, in Texas, uh, Dana-Farber, the the world renowned, the top 10, they brag about uh, if you come to us, you have a 25% higher survival rate than if you just go to your local regional hospital for cancer care. And part of that is that they are leading edge, their research centers They have billions of dollars coming in from the U.S. government, the National Health Institute. Um, And so I learned that quickly (laughs) that I needed to be an advocate. But more importantly, through my treatment, there were months I couldn't even talk (laughs) because of the radiation to my throat and the operations and all of that. So that I had to get my family to advocate for me. Mm -hmm. 
and that they had to learn the language as well and what questions to ask and where to push because they have to be pushed. I mean, they're doing standard of care. You know, it's a hospital. And if you don't ask, you don't get, mm-hmm. <laughs> you don't get. So my family, I, I had to, in, I had to impose upon them <laughs> to learn the language and to ask the, the right questions and to ask for the right people on my behalf. What I also learned is that caregivers are, <laughs> are important. They are extremely important and that they don't get from the hospitals and from some of the uh, staff, they don't get the respect or the consideration that they should. Caregivers are amazing. If you and, and my daughter was taking care of two of us, and she was pregnant, with, oh and she gosh. had her own family, and she had her own family. Okay, and she's trying to balance, and you know, several balls in the air, and um, it became apparent that she needed help as well. You know, so we had to reach out to other members of our family, members of her church, uh, other members in the community to come and help. Mm-hmm to do simple things like drive, drive me to radiation five days a week, you know, or to uh, make sure that I was being fed through a feeding tube. So everybody had to learn how to do that in the circle. And that the hospitals didn't give us any information on that. We had to learn how to do that ourselves. Um, But when I got through everything and, and, and was considered, you know, in remission, I really just started thinking about how many people go through this with no help, no instruction, no education, no patient education, no caregiver education. There were lots of times when things were happening to me that even my caregivers, they didn't know, you know, and and everything doesn't require a, a rush to the emergency room if you have the information in advance. Because you get to the emergency room and it's something maybe, you know, the person just needs um, to be infused with, you know, water or, you know, liquids or whatever, dehydration. You know, one time I went to the emergency room and sat for six hours to in the emergency room only to find I was dehydrated. Oh, gosh. Yeah. And that was part of the problem. And if we had known that I was dehydrated or had any clue what that looked like, um, I could have been hydrated at home. Mm-hmm. So when, when I got through the worst parts of the treatment, I started thinking about how many, many families, I mean, many of the people Center with had questions. Many of the people who I was just sitting outside in the doctor's office had questions. Um, and I just started thinking about um, how this could be addressed in, in, in a big way and in small ways. And Emory was just starting something called patient uh, family advisors. And they were looking for people who were interested in this um, to join. And one of their requirements was you had to be out of treatment for two years. 
I was only out of treatment nine months and I literally demanded that they change. <laughs> I was like, I can't wait for two Good years. Good for you. Yeah. Yeah I, yeah, I I need to do this now and you all need to help me do this. So what I in being a patient advocate there was that um, the need was so much more than I even thought because I'm in the, the head and neck cancer world and people were coming in in the breast cancer world in the liver cancer world in the because cancer is very specific the treatments are very specific mm-hmm. people think that oh you have cancer and it's like you know one disease when it's lots of different diseases that affect the and you know any place in your body if you have a cell you can have cancer mm-hmm. and today i do know that there are oh maybe a, between 185 and 200 different kinds of cancer even in the same place. So there's probably about eight or nine different breast cancers. And we just think breast cancer. Right. And so in getting involved in Emory on a bigger scale outside of my head and neck cancer world and outside of my husband's leukemia world, um, it became even more apparent that the ball was being dropped in a lot of areas in terms of patient care, mm-hmm. not so much in terms of patient care uh, on the on the medical level, but in terms of patient communication, in terms of patient follow up, in terms of what happens to your patients when they go home and you don't see them. You know, beyond the walls of the doctor's office or the, you know, the surgery room or whatever, operating room or whatever. So I also was fortunate enough to be asked to serve on a national panel about patient advocacy uh, through the National Cancer Institute in in Maryland or Washington, D.C., and when I got there, <laughs> it became even more apparent how widespread this problem was, but also how different treatment is for um, African-American and people of color and how different um, the community, re- the, the overall response to it was. And I started pushing, like trying to push hard on that. And I didn't get resistance, but I also didn't get acceptance. Hmm. What I got was it's on the list and we'll get, you know, we're, we're doing this and this and this. And so it's on the list. It's on the list of 10. We have a list of 10 and this might be 11 or 12 <laughs> until COVID hit. And once COVID hit last year, almost year before last now, And it became apparent in the news, in the numbers, how um, disparate the treatment was and how uh, disparate the science was uh, with regards to African-American and people of color. Mm -hmm. And so our numbers in COVID were way out of balance. You know, it's like two to one three to one in some cases that African-Americans and people of color were dying from COVID uh, more so than the other population. And then the doctors, the hospitals, the scientists 
once it was discussed and out there on the daily news and in magazines and newspapers, they started looking into it. It moved up on the list from number 12 on the list of 10 to maybe number four. <laughs> but it definitely got a different look and a different focus and a different, um, what do I want to say, a different call to leadership. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. One of the reasons what one of the reasons the numbers I do understand were so disparate on COVID was because people of color tend to have many, many more underlying conditions. Mm-hmm. So they just don't show up with COVID. They just don't show up with cancer. They show up with cancer, diabetes and high blood pressure mm-hmm. <laughs> or COVID, high, COVID obesity and diabetes. Mm-hmm. Which is which, which they've known for many, many years. <laughs> the scientists have known this. And when I go to the NCI meetings, they've known this. But there was never a cry, never a realization, or never a care <laughs> um, that this was the case. Mm-hmm. This was the case because nobody was advocating for it. Mm-hmm. So the numbers are the numbers, but if you don't have anybody questioning, pushing, you know, uh, advocating for it, then it's just a number. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a shame that it took something like COVID to bring those numbers to light, but at least now we're having the conversations, as you say. Yeah. And I have to, last week, uh, we had an episode with a woman who's a readiness and resilience expert. She used to work for FEMA. And now she works for both corporations and individuals. And we were talking about the importance of communication for people when people don't know what's happening or what's about to happen and their stress level goes up, they do worse in emergency situations. So I would imagine that as a patient who doesn't understand what a doctor's saying, they get brushed off, the doctor's in a hurry, maybe they don't even want to deal with you because you've got some kind of weird thing on top of your cancer. It must be very bad for the disease healing process for them to be in the dark or to not understand the conversation. Would you agree? Oh, I totally agree. I think, um, you know, again, I'm a numbers person. When the doctor comes in to see you, he has eight minutes. Yep. <laughs> and four of those are on the computer putting in, mm-hmm. you know, for eight minutes, you know. Uh, and they, like I said, the language barrier is 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 big you know oh you have squamous cell cancer of the da 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 and they're talking doctor language yeah and one of the things we've been pushing as advocates is like translate it translate it if you can translate it to english or at least translate it down to a level where the patient or the caregiver can understand and allow them you know to ask questions Mm -hmm. Uh, because the stress level goes up for everybody. And one of the things that we've learned is that people will give up right there. Mm -hmm. As you said, the healing, they will give up right there in the doctor's office. I don't understand what he's saying. I don't even know what this is. What am I fighting? Why am I fighting? Mm -hmm. And I've heard people say that, well, he said this and this and this, but I don't want chemo. And well, what, why don't you want chemo? I don't know, because I heard somebody said they had it, you know, and then they're going, not going on what's going on with them, but 
a bad circumstance or a bad discussion with somebody that had it, they might have even had a totally different kind of chemo than what they're going to get. Yes. Yeah. 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 Well, and it's so easy to be scared off, quote unquote, by something like the, you even say on your website, uh, you have cancer are the three words that nobody ever wants to hear. And immediately for most everybody, it strikes fear in the heart, doom and gloom. How is this going to end? What if it doesn't end the way I want? I'm going to go through weeks of radio, right? You start, ma- you start recording in your mind what's going to happen, even though you don't know what's going to happen. Like you said, it could be a different cancer, might have different treatment, different outcomes. But I can see why, especially somebody who's not fluent in doctor speak, and most of us aren't, don't okay. have somebody in the room with them, listening with them so that they could take notes, process, maybe ask a question. But like you said, could just say, this is hopeless, why would I even bother? And never mind the medical bills, right? You have started out saying, we don't take your insurance. He doesn't take your insurance. Nobody else takes your insurance. Then what? Yeah. And that's a whole nother question. Again, you know, a lot of people don't go to the hospital, especially in the African-American community, because they either don't have insurance or their insurance is not the Cadillac insurance, Yes, you know, and then they think, oh, you know, I'm going to have to pay all of this money. I'm going to go through all of this and every, the whole family's going to be broke. Mm-hmm. The whole family's going to be impoverished if, if I'm sick or if, you know, if I have to use up all the money. And one of the good things about uh, university hospitals is that they are, they're, you know, they're not free, but that they do have other programs and that they do have other resources that your local regional hospital may not truly have. Mm-hmm. And so I encourage people to go to your nearest university hospital. I really push that mm-hmm. uh, for financial reasons as well as they have the leading edge care. They have clinical trials. Your regional hospital does not have clinical trials. Right. They have, if you're interested in experimental medicine, they have special specialists. And I, you know, they're specialists, but then I call them special specialists. Yeah. And most special specialists aren't at regional hospitals. They're at the big research centers. Mm-hmm. So what, let's say somebody, you talked about being on a national panel, and I know that the Winship uh, program is in Atlanta. Yes. Are these becoming more common, these patient and family advocacy kind of organizations within hospitals for anybody that might have cancer that's not in Atlanta, say? Oh, sure. And they're becoming, the patient advocacy uh, are becoming not just for cancer, but for all, for for patients, period. Mm-hmm. I also sit on a panel at Emory that's over all of Emory Healthcare. Okay. Um, patient advocacy over all of Emory Healthcare. And then within that team, there are those of us from cardiac, cardiology, gastri- gastrology, you know, those, uh, transplant. I represent cancer. So it is becoming a bigger, um, it's becoming nationwide. Mm-hmm. It's definitely, again, in the university hospitals or the research hospitals. Um, and we have started to reach out to the rural communities. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. yeah Cause it's great. important. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I feel for people, even with this whole COVID and vaccination and getting care for the 
people that can't, they may not have a car, but they live far out of a town, an urban center. And, you know, I I know that there were efforts to bring the vaccine or treatments to people, um, but it's good to know that it's happening outside of just the idea of COVID. Right. uh, Because nobody should be left out, you know. I don't think so. When it comes to healthcare, I think everybody, nobody should be left out. Exactly. Now, you wrote a book about all of this. Tell us about your book. What's the title? Title of my book is Stronger With Two. And um, it is about my journey and my husband's journey, because on podcasts, I usually talk, I don't get to talk about his journey, but I was able to interview my husband, <laughs> which was, which was interesting. Uh, and I, and I wrote it from, you know, this is, this is what happened to me. This is what happened to him. And then this is what happened to us. <laughs> and uh, the stronger with two comes from when we got married, uh, my, we were each other second. And when we got married, my 85 year old father came to the wedding, gave me away. Aww. And uh, when um, we were leaving, he, he took us aside and he said, you guys stay together. You, you will always be stronger with two. Oh, yeah. And that's where I got the title from. But that's very uh, sweet that you got. And, and, and it proved to be the case. It really proved to be the case because I just remember a few times my treatment was so much different than my husband. He had leukemia. Subsequently, he's had a second cancer. He had lymphoma. Oh, but yeah. But when we were going through it at the same time, his treatment was just chemo, not just. His treatment was chemo. My treatment involved chemo radiation at the same time because my cancer was uh, was very aggressive. Mm-hmm. And then I had a major surgery. And there were times when he would be finished with his chemo and come home and have to take care of me. Okay. And that just it was just unthinkable. I can't even imagine because I, I also interviewed a woman who was a cancer survivor who used her diet, uh, a certain type of diet to minimize the effects of the chemo. She still went through the effects of it, but in any event, uh, she would talk about how much better she did than some people, but still when she got home for, and she had chemo for like 16 hours at a time, different rounds of it. Yeah. Yeah. So the whole next day was basically, you know, that's her in a chair watching television, hopefully. So I can't imagine your husband coming home having care for you. And I think when we talked before this podcast interview, I think you must have said that it, it taxed your marriage for both of you. Oh, absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. Not all a bed of roses were taking care of each other every minute of the day. Oh no, 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 no. It was, it taxed our marriage from several angles. First, again, I'm trying to tell him about my experience and he's looking at me and as he's feeding me through the tube (laughs) and then he would and and the chemo that I took made me nauseous all the time. I couldn't I could already couldn't eat. But the smell of food, the smell of certain things would trigger the chemo and then I would get nauseous. And. He couldn't understand because he wasn't having any of that. 
Uh, He'd go for chemo, but he'd actually go for four or five days and stay in the hospital and get chemo 23 hours a day. Oh, my. Yeah. For what he had. He was hospitalized. He'd go. He'd stay. He'd come home for a week, go back, stay five or six days, chemo, back and forth. Mm. Um, So our communication broke down. Our communication broke down. Our empathy broke down for each other at some point uh, because he was like, well, I'm doing so much better. You know, I'm getting stronger. I'm doing better. And you're not. And he was right. I wasn't. I wasn't recovering as fast. And and then I kept having setbacks, infections, Mm. going back and forth to the hospital. I kept having setbacks and he was moving forward. And so his his empathy, he and my daughter, as a matter of fact, were like, well, you should be doing this by now. And according to what we read on, you know, WebMD, uh, (laughs) (laughs) you know, by now you should be able to eat and you should be able to swallow. And I was getting so angry at both of them, Mm -hmm. you know. I was just getting frustrated and it was like, don't even come into the room. Well, we have to come into the room to feed you. Yeah, you do. But, (laughs) you know, so it it, it got very challenging um, because I was languishing. I wasn't moving as fast as everybody thought I should. And finally, the doctor, I asked the doctor, I said, could you just speak to them and really, really tell them, you know, that what they're reading on WebMD or wherever they're reading it, that I'm not there. I am so not there. Mm-hmm. And we don't know when I'll be there. It actually, I was on a feeding tube for a year. Wow. Yeah. I couldn't swallow. I had to go to swallowing rehab or something because all of the uh, muscles that you use to swallow had um, they had weakened. And so I couldn't swallow and getting again, people who have no concept of head and neck, who who can't even imagine not being able to swallow or eat or talk or whatever, getting them to understand or at least empathize. It was a job. It was a job. I'll bet you it was. Yeah. I had one tiny little episode of not being able to swallow because I took, it turns out I took a calcium supplement at night before I went to bed in a capsule form and it Uh opened while I was sleeping and it Uh burned my esophagus. So I woke up and I, I was thirsty because I always drink water and I couldn't, that mechanism, like my brain was trying to make my, and and I had a sore throat. I didn't do anything all day. I just thought it'll get better. Cause I didn't know what it was. By the time I got to the doctor at maybe four in the afternoon, he said, go immediately to the ER Yep. Blood pressure is off the charts high. You haven't had any water, you're dehydrated, right? It was very simple to solve, but it was one of those things where you may have experienced that when you were ready to swallow, you couldn't make yourself swallow, right? Because those muscles were, mine was a protection thing. Yours was obviously the muscles were not working. Right. And it is frustrating. It was very frustrating. And, and when I actually went to the swallowing therapist to learn how to swallow again and to build those muscles back up, and I could see that they had atrophied mm-hmm. and that there was just no, I mean, again, you just take it for granted. You swallow, <laughs> but there's a whole nother process going on in your body is associated with that. And who knew there was a swallow therapist, right? Exactly. Oh. Yeah, there is. 
Oh my God. And they have, they have the incredible, they have these incredible machines, these incredible techniques or whatever. Yeah. But you just don't, you don't know until you, you need to. <laughs> yes. Well, so uh, even if somebody isn't a trained uh, advocate, patient mm -hmm. advocate, would you say that it's important if you have anybody that can go with you to those doctor's appointments to bring somebody? Oh, a hundred percent. And that's also, I say a, a thousand percent, but uh, what I've, what I've learned is because of COVID right now, where they say only the yes. patient can be seen, mm -hmm. that it is having a definitely impact mm -hmm. because when you are going through a major issue like that, whether it's a heart attack, cancer, whatever it is, you need somebody in there who to take notes, mm -hmm. to ask questions, to, uh, to talk to you and explain to you what they're hearing, what the doctor is saying. So, you know, like a, almost like a translator. Mm -hmm. um, you need somebody in there who is not as emotionally involved as you, as the patient is. Mm -hmm. um, so yes, it is important for somebody else to be with you when you're, when you're there. When you're Which going. means women don't be afraid to ask for help. That's right. I know. Right. We don't want to ask them, Oh, come sit with me at the doctor. It sounds so silly, but really it's very, very important. It makes a huge difference. Or men too, because oh, yeah. one of the things I used to see that used to, well, once I got better and I started, you know, doing the advocacy and I would go into the infusion center and I would see young men there with their fathers. And it was just like, this is, you know, most of the time it's the wife sitting by the husband or vice versa. But I started seeing these young men with their fathers and it was just so uplifting mm -hmm. and women with their daughters, you know, or in some cases, their granddaughters or whatever. It's really necessary for somebody. And, and, and for you not to ask is, is if you need somebody for you not to ask, um, is you're really doing yourself a disservice and the other members of your family. Yeah, absolutely. Because you have all the information and they need some information too about what's going on with you. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Well, Barry, this has been a really great conversation. I think we've brought, touched on a number of important subjects, patient care, standard of care, who gets care, and how to be your own patient advocate and also have the involvement of other people who can help us on the journey through anything. Like you said, it could be cancer, it could be a heart attack, transplant, whatever it is, even if it seems like I can do this. I think it's really important that we have those people. And I think doctors these days, I, I have spoken to a few anyway on this podcast, they're happy to have another person listening as well because then Absolutely. there's not that call, the follow-up call, you know, maybe two people hear the whole message. And right. so it's all around a good thing. Uh, tell people where they can find you, your website, you're on Instagram. What's the name of things? My website is Barry. Ross.com. Okay. Uh, the name of my book is Stronger with Two. I'm on Instagram, Stronger, Stronger W2, okay. Stronger with Two, same thing. And uh, Facebook, Barry Roberts Ross. So, yeah, I'm okay, on the platforms. And the book is there. available Amazon. Stronger Perfect. with Two is Amazon, it's Kindle, and it's paperback. 
And uh, thank you. Terrific. Thank you very much for being here. I appreciate it. All right. Peeps, I'll be back next week with another fabulous guest. Be well until then. Thank you. Hey, before you go, peeps, I was just wondering if we are connected on social media. If not, let's do that. You can find me on Instagram at rebelwell50. Same on Twitter. Facebook, it's Rebellious Wellness Over 50. And hey, don't be a stranger. Comment. Let me know what you'd like to hear about on the podcast or what questions you have about aging better and living rebelliously. 